parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello everyone and welcome to Behind the Line Radio, a podcast about the business of video games, the making of video games, and the people of the video games industry. I'm your host, Kinetic, a.k.a. Nick, and not joining me today is uh, Baron Fang. He is not able to make it this week, but instead, we have Enthusiac's own Judge Greg. How are you doing today? Good, Nick. How are you doing? Um, well enough. I'll put it that way. Yeah, you sound like Black Death. I will just say that. Did- I, I am, I have sounded way worse than this, and you know it. <laughs> That's true. I can still talk fine. The um, uh, Judge Greg, of course, host of the Real Hero Talk and co-host of the Gamers Without Borders. So, um, and also recently guested on uh, Almost Better Than Silence, which I tried to listen to the live stream of, but that wasn't working well for me. Whatever that, if it's yep. because I was on mobile or something else was going on, anyhow. Technical details aside, also joining us today <clears throat> is Bill, star of stage and screen. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing quite all right. Better than you are, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, if anyone might already be able to guess, we've got uh, the two guests with us from the last podcast of games versus movies which was bad games versus bad movies which turned out to be a good conversation but fun funny how bad content leads to good content hmm (laughs) it's amazing how that happens and in related note stay tuned for justice league hero talk on this channel (laughs) is that is is that a spoiler of your opinion of it it is not Mm mm-hmm Okay. Ooh, teaser. <laughs> um, but today, I wanted to, you know, this might even turn out to be like a recurring sub-series for Behind the Line Radio here, because I think there's a lot of different aspects of this comparison that we can look at. And the one that I wanted to do, since uh, Judge Greg and I have each uh, gone on and saying we wanted to play uh, Hellblade and grabbed it with the uh, the sale... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. recent, well, not sale, but the promotion. Well, not the sale with the yeah the, the charitable the charity promotion. promotion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we ran into that, and man, mental health is a really big thing in that game. That should not come as a surprise to anybody. Um, but it got me thinking. What what about video games and movies are similar or different about depictions of mental health issues, or as I've started to hear it referred to as neuroatypical, which I, I kind of like, it's a little, it's a little long of a term, but it, 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 it is a term that does not carry negative connotations with it. So, yeah, I see. I always go to, um, Oh, the comedian George Carlin, whenever he talked about shell shock and how, Every time we do this, when we make it sound uh, a, a little nicer, then people don't think it's as big a deal. And because he, he used to talk about how, like, you know, when we called it shell shock, people understood what our troops are going through. And then it was battle fatigue. Now they're just fatigued. And then it was uh, post traumatic stress disorder. And he used to say, maybe if we still called it shell shock, we'd get our guys the help they needed instead of just telling them that they have a disorder. So 
Yeah, that that carries the other weird sticky bits where there are people who think that it's only for combat veterans and and whatnot. Where mm. the 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 same thing applies to a whole host of different um, instigating yeah. factors. Uh, that's true. I mean, listen, there's there's no there's no easy three second soundbite that's going to just fix mental health disorders, but that doesn't stop people from trying to think there are. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, um. How about how about we start it this way? I have a, a, a list of titles um, that I want to kind of touch on uh, from the video game side of things. But to kind of balance things out and to put them on the spot, uh, let's go to Bill and ask if you have any movies that you think kind of stand out in your recollection for how they present uh, mental health issues. Well, I... Interestingly enough, I mean, there's a lot, right? Because you have some that are fairly big and fairly recent, like Shutter Island and things like that. I think one of the more interesting ones, uh, it's a little bit older, um, but is touches on the whole PTSD uh, scenario, is Jacob's Ladder. Um, I don't know if you guys are both familiar with it, but that is one of the few movies that I watched and felt a little bit like I was going crazy while I watched it. Because there came a certain point where, and I have to assume that this sort of happens to people whose reality has been bent by their experiences enough, that I would be watching the screen and I literally didn't know what was going to happen next. Like anything could have happened. And I would have been like, yes, that's part of this film. Because it was that... um, that different and that mind bending for me as the viewer. And I thought that was a really interesting experience from the standpoint of feeling like I had so little control. Like normally we watch a film and we think, Oh, I know what's coming next. It's going to be something like this or so-and-so. Oh, Oh wait, he's Kaiser Soze is the big twist at the end. Right. We should as point opposed- out here too, as you say that, that this is going, this, this podcast as with the others is going to be under hero talk rules. It's a spoiler podcast. Everything's on the table. So, yeah. So I didn't say, I didn't I, say I, who was Kaiser Soze. Kevin Spacey's <laughs> Kaiser Soze. Because <laughs> because you just wanted to make it be there. But as long as, long as we're spoiling, let's let's just go full out. Spoil spoiling. it all the way. Well, I got a couple but, other things that I'm probably going to spoil the hell out of. But but with that film, there's no moment where you go, oh, that's the big turn. I mean, some people would say the ending is a bit of a surprise, but by that point, it's not. Nothing's a surprise anymore. And you just kind of sit there going, wait, this is just so strange. And I think that is very interesting from the standpoint of the way, and this might have some bearing on video games, the way it brought me as the viewer into this state where I felt a little bit crazy on my, for, for my own part, on my own part. So let me ask you, was there anything, like, you kind of spoken about it in, in sort of general terms of, of the effect that it had on you. What sort of... Um, was it how the the camera work plot line? What about the movie as a movie or anything about that that caused you to feel that way? The Had visuals, that effect on you? The visuals that they chose and the startlingness both of the visuals and how they appeared. So one of the the main characters played by Tim Robbins and he's walking around through through life and every now and then he'll look up and there'll be somebody standing in a crowd. And they have no face because their head is moving side to side, like 
like like they're shaking their head so quickly that it looks like a person with a bag over their head. Huh. And these people keep appearing here and there and in strange places. And meanwhile, other bizarre things happen that then haven't happened. There's a scene where his girlfriend is dancing and it's it becomes fairly erotic. She's dancing with somebody else and it becomes fairly erotic. She has her back turned to this person and you see her open her mouth and a horn bursts out of her mouth as though she's been impaled. And it's just so startling and so out of what, you know, just out of the realm of what you would expect that you start to think, okay, this could, anything could happen. You know, somebody opens a door and you're like, what's going to be there? And at one point it's one of these characters with their, the face that's vibrating so fast that you can't identify anything. And these images come just enough to make you question everything else that you see. Like, is this, is this going to go weird? Is this going to be strange? And they do a great job with the music and the timing and um, the presentation of these images to leave you feeling so unsettled that it just, it just kind of makes you want to go. The way I feel about Jacob's ladder is everyone should see it, but nobody should have to see it twice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I've, I've only seen it once and it had, and probably 15 years ago. I don't even remember when it came out now. But it's still really present in my mind. So, actually, uh, I haven't seen that. But the way you're describing it kind of reminds me of the way I felt watching The Naked Lunch, where stuff was just like, I don't know if this is really happening or not. Yes, very much. But the thing about Naked Lunch is there is... There is a logic behind the things that you're not sure are happening, and a lot of that has to do with that. What they're dealing with in that is drug use. So now you can draw a parallel between altered state of mind and altered you know, state of reality, um, and that you end up with an altered state of mind basically in an altered state of reality as well. Um, but there is a certain amount of logic behind Naked Lunch that's not necessarily behind Jacob's Ladder. I will agree, though, that you can have – it's very easy to have that sense by not very far into that film of going, wait, what just happened? <laughs> the typewriter's a bug? What? He shot his wife? What? Wait, why is she back? <laughs> and and that sort of thing. I will say I will say one of the best scenes I think in that film is when the main character played by Peter Weller is talking to Ian Holm, who folks might know as the character who plays the older version of Bilbo from the Hobbit and um, Lord of the Ring movies. Ian Holm is having a conversation with him, and he starts to have this conversation that Peter Weller says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, should we be talking about this? Aren't people going to find out about it and you know be angry that we're talking about this?" And <laughs> Ian Holm says, "Oh." Oh, we're not talking about this at all. Look at my lips. And if you look at the character, you realize what he's saying, what you're hearing, and what his lips are saying don't sync up anymore. And he's saying, we're actually having a very pleasant conversation about the weather. And and they continue to talk about Interzone, which is this secret that nobody's supposed to know about, because they're only speaking mentally. They're not actually speaking with their mouths. And it's you watch it and you just go, okay. 
Okay, that's crazy and cool. That's a powerful scene in that film. I, I specifically remember that more than anything else from that film. And also, we just need to point out the, the oddity of uh, Ian Holm and Peter Weller are talking about, and you need to, felt the need to, to point out who Ian, Ian Holm is, and completely ignoring the fact <laughs> that RoboCop was in that scene. Well, I would have I would have gone with Buckaroo Bonsai myself. I was about to say RoboCop. RoboCop. <laughs> One of my favorite movies of all time is Peter Weller in RoboCop. So I just needed to drop that reference in there. Okay. I well, I, I, I'm going to take this quick opportunity to say we watched the remake of RoboCop, so you owe me a, a hero talk on Buckaroo Bonsai. <laughs> that's how I'm going to get that one back. That's that's fair enough. Oh, that remake was awful. I'm sorry. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, with, with some of that described, uh, what I wanted to do now is discuss a few of the video games and kind of what they do to try to, mm-hmm. uh, as video games, demonstrate uh, um, uh, or illustrate or put you in the headspace of certain mental illness or, or what have you. So, Can I insert an audible sigh right here? Because... I know how well they've done it in the past, and so <laughs> I just want to preface this with, ah, okay, continue. So the one that I'd want to start with is probably the one that everybody already has in mind, and that's uh, Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem. Yes. Uh, anytime Sanity is a slider, I think you've missed the bus on mental health. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, Eternal Darkness doesn't really take mental health or sanity into account in a, I don't know, truly respectful way. It might be one way to describe it, but another way might be like medically accurate or anything like (laughs) that. It's, it's more just like Cthulhu reality is starting to come apart and it's just a meter that you work with that then draws from a grab bag of tricks that it'll try to play on you. And really for the most part, when you, I haven't played eternal darkness for a while, but I remember at one point just actively trying to harm my sanity meter to see what it would do. Yeah. And I, I recall that as well. I mean, it's just, and I've, I've seen similar sliders in other games, but it, what really kind of struck me about eternal darkness is just the idea that as your sanity meter, sanity meter, still a kind of, uh, roll my eyes when I say that, as, as it drops and you see these things happening. I mean, it, it's, it, it it plays into that adage that, first of all, that everyone can go mental health crazy just depending on on circumstance. I'm like, oh, well, you're not Joker talking to Commissioner Gordon, okay? This is not an actual real conversation that helps anybody. And that it's basically dangerous and psychotic things that you're seeing. And so it just, it also plays into the idea that you know, pe- people with mental health issues are a danger to themselves and others. And while there are extreme cases where they are, it's a stigma which prevents a lot of people from getting help they need. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that I, I'm, I'm, as somebody who actually has played that game and was a fan of that game, and and I should say still is. I, I haven't disowned the game, but I think when you when you look at any time you have a, a sanity slider, when looking through the lens of mental health, it's it's dangerous uh, to somebody who isn't at least well-versed or, or confident enough to be able to throw the BS flag and say, I, I see what you're doing, but that's not, that's not what it is. Yeah. I, I, I think that one, a, a, perhaps a better way to look at eternal darkness is it's not a sanity thing or an insanity thing. It's more along the lines of, and, and they should just sort of lean into the Cthulhu esque 
aspect of it and say this isn't mental health. This is like things are starting to pull at reality itself. Mm -hmm. And so that takes it out of any sort of medical, mental health type of context. And then you can still have all the weird, freaky fun. But it's not a sanity meter. It's more like a reality meter or something like that. Right, right. Because, like like we've been saying, it's not really, like, it it handles, treating it as a sanity meter is really just an overly simplistic or possibly, depending on how how rough you want to be with your description, childish way of approaching the topic. Um, And I... It's 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 one of those things that maybe you could retackle the idea nowadays uh, in a more interesting and nuanced way, but um, mm-hmm. other than that, it's kind of uh, a product of its time. Yeah, it's like Fa- from- Fahrenheit had something similar, didn't they? Indigo uh, Prophecy. I I haven't played that one. I want to I want to say that one was just it, it, you had a mental health meter, and if it ever dropped down to zero, you had a game over. And so the whole point was you had to try to do things to calm yourself throughout the course of the game or else you would you'd lose because your your mental health would drop down. But it, again, it's just the idea that, well, if you're in a bad situation, if you're not quite washing your hands enough or having enough sex, then you're going to go crazy and just break down is not a, exactly a, an accurate depiction of how any healthy person would work. And it paints a really rough picture of mental health that... Mm. I, I, anytime you try to equate mental health to actual literal craziness, you're you're stigmatizing people from getting the help they need. And yeah, I, I don't well, like also, doing that. There's also the problem with the metaphor of the meter. That is that what you're dealing with there is a linear progression, and what happens to people isn't linear. We don't go f- from oh, oh I feel this healthy to I feel that healthy to I feel this healthy. It's I'm feeling great, and then something hits us like a ton of bricks, mm-hmm. and that's why you know that's what PTSD is about. Something comes along that we don't have the tools or capability to contend with, and because of that, we we create a situation that allows us to contend with it as much as we can to the extent that we can, and then the repercussions from that bubble back up, and so mental health oftentimes isn't about things that are happening in the moment. It's so often about things that have happened in the past. And in film, you know, that happens all the time where somebody's somebody's uh, compromised mental health is a result of something that they've experienced. I mean, there's the newly released Punisher series and that whole thing, that whole character is based on the traumatic events that happen when he's totally unprepared when when he gets back from combat and then his family is dead. I think you touch on something interesting there where it's, Mm -hmm. it's an event that uh, uh, not all the time, but many times uh, uh, issues, particularly PTSD or something that can be based on something that happens to somebody or, or some event like that. And there's actually a problem translating something like that to video games where one of the key features is that the player has agency over a character. Yeah. So, so how do you so how do you make the player crazy as opposed to the character crazy? Or how do you make <laughs> or how do you make the characters how do you ma- how do you how do you instabi- instabili- instability affect the play of the game? 
So this is actually the next uh, game example I was going to come up with, and, and I think we can go over this one a lot quickly, a lot more quickly than Eternal Darkness, because with Eternal Darkness we had a, a number of points that we had to address. But yeah. Spec Ops The Line, mm-hmm. I think, is is a, a actually a pretty good... I've brought it up before. I think it's a good example of a number of things. And, I mean, arguably the main character has PTSD. He's a super unreliable narrator. You're making decisions that make sense to you as you're playing the game. And in the end, you start looking back at it and, and, and you see, like, okay, what I thought was happening wasn't actually happening. And, yeah. you, like, you learn that your perceptions of what you were doing, the things that you thought were the case that you were making decisions about, that, like, you, it turns out you were making decisions based on false impressions of what was happening, which is why you wind up, you know, dropping white phosphorus on civilians and doing, it, actually, you, you commit a number of war crimes in that game. <laughs> yes. But at the time you're committing them, the game presents it to you in a situation where you you don't you don't know you're committing these war crimes. I mean, you think first of all you're going through a, a standard video game, and it, it really shines the spotlight on the player and, and the game genre as a whole. But everything in contents in context makes perfect sense. It, it until, even seems like yeah. it's the only reasonable way forward. Yeah, and, until you get to it's it's like a it reminds me of a beautiful mind in that. Everything seemed to be making sense until suddenly it wasn't. And then once you look back at everything, then you realize, oh, wait, you know, that something was wrong here the whole time. And I, I, as the player, didn't recognize it because I was looking at the world through this person's eyes. And this person's eyes were, you know, deceiving him and deceiving me. And I think there's something interesting about that because... As uh, somebody who's performed and, you know, had to direct to people who are doing something that involves somebody who's quote-unquote crazy or something along those lines, one of the things I have to tell people a lot is crazy doesn't mean do whatever comes into your head. Real crazy and real real depictions of madness that that are touching and sort of of create um, an ability to empathize – come from the fact that oftentimes what's happening to the person who is afflicted actually makes sense. There is a logic to what they are going through, and as they look at it, it totally makes sense. This goes back to, um, if anybody remembers this film, The Fisher King. The Robin Williams character in The Fisher Mm -hmm. King is crazy. He's affected by PTSD because of the fact that somebody, you know, that that these horrible things happened in his past that, that he was affected by what somebody said and, 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 uh, you know, his fiance, I think was killed, but for him, the crazy things that he is doing make sense and will make the world a better place. And if he acts through the process of finding the grail, things will be better. And these things make sense to to the crazy people. And usually in the better portrayals, I think, of madness on screen, at some point you hit, you find something that may not make everything make sense, but suddenly you realize, oh, he thinks people are flowers, so cutting off their heads is how he collects them to give them to his loved ones. Or, you know, it's never that simple and it shouldn't be, but that's the kind of thing that ends up making you go, feel making you feel for the character who's who's got an entirely different worldview 
and it relates, you know, quite well to your to the, to the spec ops game idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right, and so moving on to the next title that I wanted to mention, one that I finally finished, uh, uh, and I, Greg, I know you've played it because you talk about it plenty. Um, Life is strange. Life is strange. Yes, one of my top five favorite games of all time. Mm. So, like, mental health in that game isn't, uh, um, f- like, right up front or in your face. And I- I'm not even sure that as a game it does anything particularly special that, say, a movie wouldn't, uh, other than to make things feel a little more immediate by making the character associate making the player associate with one of the characters and and you know you have to make choices you you have to actively do something to progress the story forward right mm-hmm. and so you do things that will have effects on other characters and you have stuff like um i think the one that really uh struck home to me was uh when chloe said that she felt that her father had abandoned her and that was mm-hmm. the point where, to me, Chloe went from really annoying to sympathetic, because and and like she's had other um, like medications in her room that you can find and other stuff going on. So you know that she's you know been through an emotional ringer and it's taking a toll on her. And that's the point where why that's happening makes sense. A little bit like Bill said, something happened to this character. This character lost her dad in a car wreck. And she internalized, I'm not sure I'm using the word correctly in this context, but she interpreted it in a way that her dad abandoned her and lashing out like this is how she copes with it. She left her with with a a life that that she didn't want. And and then, of course, just to to add some fuel to the fire, then, you know, she she develops almost immediately. I'm now kind of getting a little bit into uh, Life is Strange Before the Storm. Uh, which is is currently in the process of being released, but um, she ends up meeting meeting the character Rachel Amber, who was a central part of the Life is Strange story. Um, when you get some backstory there, she met Rachel Amber very shortly after her her dad actually passed, and created a a very strong bond with this person, a person who also uh, she lost, and and so you have like that almost the the double abandonment where every single person that she gets really close to suddenly is gone from her life. Uh, and you could even include in that Max a little bit, although Max just moved away and was a jerk about it. But Well, Max never wrote back either, so it might as well have been gone. In fact, she was listed uh, in one portion. She said that uh, Max left her, too, or something along those lines. Yeah. So and anyway, and in, in Before the Storm, you get a little bit more context into exactly like to the extent to which Max just almost cut her completely out of her life. Mm hmm. And, and and that's all subtext. You get that through some stories and some text messages and stuff on the phone. So it's the game's very good at storytelling that way and some story behind the story. But it gave you a, a real insight in, into Chloe's character. And she's a character who originally, and I saw her, I thought, I, I cannot stand this person. And I now very actively think that she's a much better character than I gave her credit for. She is my favorite character from the series, and I no longer like the character of Max, so... Yeah, I, I don't know how that really pertained to it. But getting back <laughs> to mental health, uh, yeah, it, it it gives you an idea of the way she acts, and and I, Chloe is just self sabotaging, and she's just she can't 
she doesn't want to get close and she's just she's got these demons after all of this this trauma that's happened to her and that repeatedly happens to her that you know it it puts her in a state that you get to to witness firsthand through the eyes of Max and then later on in, in the series through the eyes of Chloe herself yeah but i i would say though for life is strange the big thing is that since it is you know almost telltale style or that sort of narrative style of game that there isn't so much of the gameplay itself anything about the depiction of mental health in this one to distinguish it from one storytelling method or medium from another worth bringing up but i i think that um it's more a case of this is an, a a very good case of character development rather than using video games as a medium to right. uh, uh use what they have that's special to 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 point mm-hmm. things out in a special way but yeah. that, there's other characters from that game we could talk about too but sure we but, could almost do an entire podcast about some of the characters in that game and and we got they, more stuff to get present. to here yeah, so I'm we'll back off, but even beyond Chloe, there were other characters in in the game that we could we could take apart and look at. Yeah, we could probably do one on everybody, but <laughs> but they they're like eighteen year old, so there's plenty of crazy. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but and David has textbook PTSD. <laughs> um, but then we've got sort of the main one that started me thinking about this whole thing, and that's Hellblade. Senua's mm-hmm. Sacrifice, which makes no bones about it that you are playing a character that's got something pretty significant wrong with... I, I should walk that back a bit because I don't want to say... I don't want to ca- phrase it in a way that casts judgment, but there's definitely something going on. Like, right. it, whether it's a psychosis or something. And... Throughout the whole thing, you're never entirely sure if anything that's happening is really happening. Um, but I, I I am of the opinion that Senua is schizophrenic. And if you go through the, the, the quick rundown of the story, again, spoiler podcast, you have uh, Senua, who her mother was like an oracle, a Celtic oracle of some sort, I think, uh, who also had this, uh, the same uh, maybe... Um, psychosis or whatever which which led her to that but married like something along the lines of a fundamentalist druid who looked at as a curse um it was always referred to to her as the darkness uh her it it basically gets revealed that her father and this is all backstory her father had had her mother burned at the stake uh kept her kept senua locked away treated her horribly really made things a lot worse um, she eventually started, um, uh, sneaking out or walking out on her own at some points, uh, saw, uh, found a guy named Dillian who was really, really good to her, uh, like watched him from afar, learned how to actually fight just from watching him. Uh, they, uh, started a relationship with each other. Uh, I get the impression that the sequence was when they were in a relationship after Senua had, had basically said F off to her father. I'm doing this now, um, which was depicted and depicted as a rather difficult experience for her to get through. Um, cause everything about her life seems to be difficult. Um, she went off into the woods to try to fight the darkness on her own to, to defeat it and to like, you know, 
recover whatever from a neuroatypical state or however you want to describe it, um, mm-hmm. comes back and learns that Vikings had raided her village and killed Dillian in a rather brutal way. Uh, and she took his head and went somewhere, uh, maybe while she was in the woods or after that, she met a, uh, I forget his name, the other guy who basically fed her a bunch of information about the Vikings so that you can kind of pick up and, and hear bits of along the way. So you get some interesting uh, Nordic folklore with all of this. But she goes to a place to try to um, restore Dillian's spirit, like free it from the Viking underworld, something like that. The motivations are a little murky. Um, is she actually there? I don't know. Are the beastly enemies that teleport in that she's fighting actually exist? I don't know. She seems to get really strong at points. If you take gameplay mechanics as metaphor that you can get knocked down and like button mash to recover, that kind of implies that it's not actually happening because it's more like a feeling or a sense Mm -hmm. of adversity that you can push yourself to overcome rather than, you know, a sword through the stomach. Like willpower isn't going to get you over that. Not to say that having difficulty with it is a question of willpower, but, you know, there's being stabbed is rather absolute. Um, And then there's the, uh, the the fact that you have these weird visions uh, like different sort of different versions of reality that you can wind up going through uh, like psychic fires that start. Well, not really psychic fires, but they, they seem kind of symbolic. Uh, Senua is referred to as having the sight. Um, there's a bit where you go through memories and they, those can involve these strange uh, creatures that are clearly not of this world. Uh, you might be meeting Viking gods at points, um, a lot of stuff going on. And then, of course, the big mechanic, the the rot that kind of grows up her arm. And the game says, you know, if it reaches her head, game's over, everything gets deleted. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Is that real, though? Like, did anyone ever, like, try that out just to make sure it actually I am, deletes your I am room? all but certain that it's not true. There was one point right before the end of the game where uh, when I played through it, I died and the rot growing up the arm went all the way back down to the wrist. And it had never done that before. I think it just kind of loops. Okay. I've never heard I, of anyone I was having their... Like, if they actually would do that, or is that just something they tell you so that you get the extra anxiety about it? But yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of what they were going for, but I don't think it implemented the way they were hoping to make it work to try to make the player question the reality of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to bring about that, like I think this is something that kind of going back to the comparisons here, movies. Something like The Naked Lunch can make you question the logic of what's going on, but you see that there's a logic. Games, if they require the player to be able to interact with something, its logic has to be reliable enough to not completely alienate the player. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if things get too weird and too random, it's just it's it's no longer a reasonable expectation for a player to be able to understand how to proceed. Uh, Whereas with a movie, there is no requirement for an audience member to understand how to proceed. 
Well, you could go back as far as as far as a film like Un Chien Andalou, which, mm-hmm. you know, Picasso had a hand in. And there's just so much that happens in that film that you watch it and you go, OK, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. Interesting image. Crazy. Interesting image. Crazy. And the fact of the matter is, in order to get through a film, the only thing that's required is time. You mm-hmm. don't need to actually understand it. You can just let the images wash over you. And let's face it, that's what most people do with films and TV these days, is they just let the images and sounds wash over them. And so you don't need a critical faculty to be engaged in the consumption of that form of media. You do need a critical faculty engaged to be able to consume a video game. And without that, and without the ability to make the critical faculty, to to relate that critical faculty to your progress in a way that the player can understand, then, like you say, then the player at a certain point just throws their hands in the air and walks away. I think that another another point here is, um, you, like you, you, with a movie, you say you can let things wash over you, but there's another point where, if if you don't pick up on something or you don't grasp something, whether or not you're passively uh, letting it wash over you or trying to engage those critical, uh, uh, th- some critical thinking to understand what's going on, you can get to the end. And when you're at the end, you'd be like, okay, now I have to look back and figure this stuff out or something. Whereas with mm-hmm. a game, you might be blocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with a game, it's straight up. There's no forward progression unless the player initiates it. Whereas <clears> with the movie, even if you're lost and confused, you can still... The movie will continue. They won't, they won't stop it. Though it would be awesome if they did, wouldn't it? Wait, yeah, it would be fun. Like, wait, wouldn't, okay. Like it, okay somebody in the you, audience, you have to answer audience. this multiple choice question, and if you get it wrong, we're shutting the movie off. Or, that sounds or, like... Or actually, that sounds like an interesting... Uh, uh, movie experiment where when you play it, like at a certain point you stop it, and then there's something very ambiguous going on, and you kind of pull the audience to see what people think the reality is of this ambiguous thing, and then you kind of branch the movie off from there. Well, what is this new Steven Soderbergh product that I haven't investigated it, but apparently there's some sort of almost choose-your-own-adventure TV series? Has anybody have you come across this? The only reason I I saw it something on Facebook about it I haven't investigated it I don't know what it is, but the only reason I thought that might be what it what I was looking at is because a friend of mine from film from from uh who's been, just graduated from film school had this idea to create a choose your own adventure TV series where you film all the bits that would need to happen. And at, you get to the end of an episode, it might be five minutes or ten minutes or half an hour, whatever, and you pick the next episode. You pick what the major choice is, and therefore that determines what you see next. Um, the difficulty is, of course, he did the math on like a 13 series, uh, a 13 episode series, and the, the numbers were really, really huge in terms of what you had to film. So he's like, well, maybe they can't be had half hour long, but... It would be interesting because that would be a way that would be this middle ground between video gaming and film consumption, where by choosing, you are actually making interpreting what you've seen happen up to now. And maybe if you didn't get something earlier, 
the thing the situation for the characters ends up deteriorating or if you did get it the situation ends up improving for those characters mm. could be an interesting could be an inch like i say it could be an interesting middle ground yeah there was that series I, th- I think it it failed they were trying to like run events in the game that would influence a show that was being run on the sci-fi network and something defiant is that right i don't know i don't care with it, it had a d in it I the, on, so, the only thing I care yeah. about it is that it existed. So <laughs> briefly, yes, very briefly. Um, yeah. So, um, and to go back to Hellblade to just kind of wrap up some of that, there, there's a whole lot that goes on in there where you know it's very clear that she's got uh, issues in the dark. Um, there, there's issues with. Um, her memories uh there's issues with her interpretation of viking legends and her being able to accept loss being able to accept her own uh state mental state state of health um and but in the end there's kind of this trippy bit at 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 the very end uh greg have you have you completed it yet or do you mind if i I mean, it's a spoiler podcast, but you're a guest, so I don't want to... Yeah, I, I haven't completed it, but but go ahead. Do what you got to do. Okay, so at the very end, you know, in the game, she's basically wants to take Dillian's head to Hela and to try to make some bargain with her to have her release Dillian's spirit, which is why she needs his head, because that's the seat of the soul, or so the game's logic goes. In the end, you get to Hela. There's a big fight. At the end of the fight... Um, Essentially, you have to lose, I believe, at the end. Because what happens is Hella winds up picking up Senua, stabbing her through her stomach. She drops. Hella, uh, uh, Senua's dying. Hella reaches over, picks up Dillian's head, and carries it over. They're in this weird building precipice something or other and winds up kind of walking to a ledge over a, a great drop. And it looks like, okay, I'm not, it, it, the logic of the bargaining going into it is murky at best. Like, is she offering her life in exchange for Dillian's soul or kill her? So Hella kills her. Does that mean it was accepted or refused? Or is there a difference? Um, so you see Hella walk over to the edge. And I think at that point, I don't remember the exact sequence of what you see, but but the head is dropped, and the the camera pans down to follow. It pans up, and it wasn't Hella; it was Senua, and like Hella's the one down on the floor, and Senua smiles, kind of talks to the camera, and says something to the extent of "Let's look for another adventure." It's, I I I don't remember the line, and I don't mean that to come across as is there was something, um simple or petty about it like this was just an adventure i mean it was all clearly intensely personal to her but she's gotten to a point where okay this is done it's time to do something else but the point of that all is at the very end it seems that she feels much better about herself uh much more at peace so something through this whole thing led her to um some self-revelation 
So what is the sacrifice? You know, because the whole thing is Hellblade Senua's sacrifice. You go through the whole thing. I don't know what the sacrifice is re- referring to. Is she supposed to be sacrificing herself for Dillian? In the end, I think it's actually she was sacrificing her attachment to Dillian to be able to move on. I don't know that's, if I really have a point to this anymore. <laughs> yeah. But that certainly sounds like sounds like a a certain logic of madness or logic Uh of loss and sorrow when you put it that way my question suddenly became as you were talking about it so oh she looks like she feels better well was it actually dillian's head then becomes my question is it it, i suppose that's ambiguous but there is nothing in the presentation of the game that would that would indicate it was anything else because i was wondering if i was wondering if there's the possibility that it's her father's head uh, nothing in the game would indicate that no okay because that would be that would be interesting if the if at the end you realize oh it's not that she's trying to get over Dillian it's her, she's trying to get rid of the influence of somebody else on her that would be interesting too mm. sequel <laughs> <laughs> well it's the next it's the next Senua's next adventure yeah, yeah. Senua two electric boogaloo <laughs> <laughs> went back. Went, went, went ahead in time were those magic glyphs that glow. Those were actually electricity. <laughs> She's really been in the modern world the whole time, and her perception mm-hmm. is that off. Some, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I, th- I think Hellblade really does the best of sort of showing you kind of what it's like to be in that position where all of these things make sense to the character. As a player, you know, if you translate this video game logic into the real world, like these portals that when you look through, reality changes, uh, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Video game but, logic, In video game yeah. logic, it works, but, okay, is that happening because we're in a video game, or is that happening because her perceptions are different? Yeah, and that's, and that's that. the one thing I think takes away, and, and I, I hate to say takes away from it because I, I'm loving this game so far, but the the thing that that kind of occurs to me a little bit is that being that it's a video game and we are so used to just accepting whatever reality they put in front of us, I wonder if maybe we don't we don't kind of we're we're not giving ourselves all over to their vision because we just seem to think okay yeah some weird stuff's happening but you know I played Portal yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and you can't really hold that one against the game either. That's just the no. At no, least the I mean, game it's, on its nar- own. narratively, it's doing everything right. It's it's just a matter of I sometimes wonder if if we the gamers were ready for this sort of narrative when they released it. Yeah, and I think that so I think that to to try to kind of tie this up for the sake of this uh, conversation itself, I think Hellblade. Probably falls into the if you're going to make it a parallel with a movie, uh, the one that Bill mentioned earlier, Shutter Island. I think that plays. I, I think those line up pretty well. Where like, oh, reality isn't exactly what we're looking at. It's like, why are you so wet, baby? Um, kind of a, a wham moment there. So in, in Shutter Island, it all kind of comes to a head all at once, and in Hellblade, you kind of go into it with your eyes open, but like that level of involvement of this aspect of its topic and theming seems fairly parallel to me. Um, I think that games have the ability to make things feel a bit more personal and identifiable. Whereas with movies, things can be 
more separated from you, like on the other side of the glass, so to speak. Um, so I, I guess the other question is, is, is there a way to... And this, this is a rhetorical question in the sense of I'm not really expecting to uh, extend the conversation around this right now. But is there a way to further... It, it feels like movies, because you don't have to engage those critical faculties, can kind of take some of this theming further than video games can. So is there a way for video games to push it even farther than, than has been right now? I, I, I'm not sure. But I think that the intimacy of, of the storytelling in a video game because of the agency of the player brings a certain greater depth to it. Well, I think this might not be unrelated to the podcast we did ages ago about narrative mm-hmm. in that narrative in video games versus film is something that I feel like there's something still to come. There is a new format or structure that somebody hasn't quite figured out yet, but has every now and then we get glimpses of what it might be, whether it be her story or something along those lines. Um, And when that happens, it will give, I have a feeling it might give the, the tools to the designers to create a narrative that, also gives you the ability to impart the same sense of madness to the player that you can, and the ability to get through it without understanding it or, or having the same, without having the same blocks that insanity would create in a game currently. Like there's a way to, there's a way for this to happen. It's just people haven't explored the narrative form enough yet. And you know, with novels and films, well, with films, people have been exploring the narrative form for well over 100 years. With novels, it's been hundreds of years. So obviously the ability to to play with those, people have found all sorts of great ways to play with them. And so whether it be Memento and the fact that mm-hmm. the film is basically going backwards or, you know, in in uh, literature, if it's uh, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, where every other chapter is the first chapter of an entirely different book. Hmm. And you're just going, what? (laughs) And so those games have, people have learned how to play those with more uh, uh, deeply established narrative forms. I think video games, it's still, I mean, it's only, what, 30, 40 years since the narration was shoot and it blows up, you know, asteroids. So well, the narrative form still has a lot of developing to do, I think. Well, not to knock the deep lore of asteroids. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, we're... I, I think video games, given that they are, in terms of a narrative vehicle, very, very... In, I mean, they're in their infancy right now. And I think what we're seeing, even in the infancy, infancy is tremendous promise. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we are... 20 years ago it was save the girl from the monkey yeah so we're gonna see more stuff happening in the future we've we're we're seeing more drive towards a more narrative a a heavier like people talk about having games that are more cinematic 
there's talks about you know ludo narrative dissonance there's talk about uh mechanics as metaphor all kinds of stuff and more is going to happen to try to flesh this out there's going to i'm going to guess there's going to be more games that have shorter running times shorter play times to try to get to the point yeah because there's going to be more people like you and me greg who want to see all these games but don't have time to invest in all of them I don't have time for a 20 to 40 hour investment every game I want to play. Sometimes yeah. I just want narrative. Yeah. So <laughs> that we're, we're, we're going to get there. Um, but for that, um, I think um, I wasn't exactly even sure how this was going to come out. So I didn't go for a Twitter bag this week in case uh, people ask questions. I'm like, oh, no, this wasn't going to happen. It seemed like kind of a risky topic, but I think it came out all right. Um, and... I think, um, yeah, I, I don't have any. We're going to skip the War Story segment, too, this week. So I think we're going to call it here. Thanks for the discussion, guys. Greg, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Bill, nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you as well. Oh, handing off the baton. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to daisy chain it. Now. It's more fun that way. <laughs> So if there's anything anybody out there would like to see me write about in the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about here on Behind the Line Radio, you can always get in touch with me at kinetic at enthusiasts.com or what people are probably more likely to do is uh, reach out to me on Twitter at KineticNose. See you all next time, everybody. Goodbye. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Enthusiacs.